0: Well, good morning. I recently came across a story about uh, a seminary professor in Dallas who got invited to speak at a Bible conference in California. And this was kind of a young guy. He had a young family. So he said, you know, I'm going to make the most of this opportunity. Let's make this a family vacation. And so they got in the car and they were driving to California and he had prepped his kids on some of the things they were going to see along the way. And his youngest son became enamored with the idea of seeing the Grand Canyon. And so as they're getting closer to the Grand Canyon, the dad's like, boy, we're about an hour away, 30 more minutes, and the anticipation is just building, the boy's excitement is building, and finally they arrive, they get out of the car, and he says, there it is, boy, the Grand Canyon. And he looks at his son, and the, the son's got this look of confusion and disappointment on his face, and the dad says, son, what's the matter? And he looks at his dad, and he says, dad, where's the cannon? I mean, this boy had anticipated a weapon of mass destruction <laughs> with the dimensions of the Grand Canyon, not some hole in the ground, right? And when the father finally explained to his boy, no, the Grand Canyon, not the Grand Cannon, the boy became distraught and unable to cope with his disappointment. And the story really hit me on two levels. First of all, like, that easily could be my family. <laughs> like, the, like, it's eerie, okay? And then, secondly, it hit me because it's such a... Um, it really speaks to the issue of unmet expectations. And how that can really lead to disappointment and disillusionment. The boy failed to appreciate the grandeur, the beauty of the Grand Canyon because he could not get over his false expectation of a Grand Canyon. And when you think about the life of Christ, as you read through the Gospels, one of the things you notice is that people were consistently disappointed in him. They were often confused by Jesus and they were consistently disappointed in Jesus and that's not even just his enemies that's even at times his family and friends and we see that this morning as we continue our study in the gospel of Luke we'll be in chapter 7 starting in verse 18 and what we're going to see is that even John the Baptist is wrestling with what to make of Jesus and starting in verse 18 this is what it says The disciples of John reported to him all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? So this is the first time we've seen John since chapter 3. And if you recall in chapter 3, it closes with John is in prison. He spoke out against one of the Herods, so Herod imprisons him. And he is rotting in a prison cell as we pick up the story here in chapter 7. And while he's there, he sends out two of his guys. He communicates with two of his disciples and he sends them out and he says, I want you to go to Jesus and I want you to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Like, seriously, are you it? Now, this is kind of confusing to us, right? Because what's going on here? I mean, what happened to our guy, John? is the same guy just a few chapters ago. He's baptizing. He says, I baptize you with water. But one who is coming, that is mightier than I. He comes before me. I can't untie the thong of his sandals. And he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he says, if we're asking, well, who is that one? Well, he also tells us in the baptismal scene, as he says, there's Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I myself have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. So John is all in with Jesus. I mean, he's his campaign manager. Jesus for King of Israel. John's at the front of the line. So what's going on? Why the doubt? Why is he sending two of his followers to Jesus asking him, no, but seriously, are you the one? Are you the Messiah, the Christ? You see, John believes that Jesus is the Messiah But John also knows his Old Testament. He's read his Hebrew Bible. And so he has a common first century expectation of the Messiah. And and that expectation is this. When Messiah comes, kingdom comes. When Messiah comes, so does his reign. And it is going to flip the world upside down. This is going to be an earthly kingdom that just puts the world on its head. And so the question is, well, what kind of kingdom did he expect? Well, the one prophesied time and time and time again in the Old Testament. That one. The one that Jesus really speaks to when he begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4. If you recall, he quotes from the book of Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So the Messiah is going to come and he's going to bring liberty to captives. He's going to bring freedom to prisoners. And John's sitting there saying, time out. Really? Because I'm surrounded by prison walls. I'm rotting in prison. And see, John also knows the verse that comes next in Isaiah chapter 61. Where Messiah is not just going to bring a time of blessing. He's also going to bring the day of vengeance of our God. See, the messianic expectation was Messiah is going to bring blessing. And as part of that blessing, Messiah is going to bring judgment. Two parts to the deal. And he's saying, really? Where's the vengeance? Where's the judgment? Herod's still in control. The Romans are all around. And I'm in prison rotting to death. So I don't understand what's going on. I mean, am I wrong about you? And so he sends out two of his guys to Jesus to get the answer. And I love Jesus' response, right? Jesus doesn't look at the the two guys and say, Are you kidding me? That makes me want to puke. Didn't you baptize me? Didn't he baptize me for goodness sakes? No. What does Jesus say? Verse 21, "At that very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave to many who were blind. He gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, "Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear." The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So Jesus' response is one of those classic Jesus responses where he doesn't answer and answers at the same time. It's just kind of his MO, right? And part of us looks at this and we go, Jesus, can you just say yes? Like, could you just say, like, yes, I am? I'm the one. I'm the guy. John, I know you have questions, but I've got answers. Here's the deal. It's going to be a two-part deal. I come and die for sin. I come back. There's the judgment. Full kingdom initiation. It's going to be beautiful. Any more questions? Let me help you out. You got anything else for me? I'm here for you. It's not what he does. It's not what he does, right? Instead, he answers through his actions. He goes on a miracle rampage. And these are not just random acts of kindness. These are all miracles prophesied in the book of Isaiah. They all point to Isaiah. They all point to Messiah. He's telling John, you know the scriptures. You know Isaiah. I'm the guy. I'm the one. So he tells the two guys, now go tell John what you have seen. Now you may be sitting here thinking, you know, I got questions too. And I wish, I wish Jesus would answer my questions in the same speed and signs and wonders in which he answered John's. But the reality is, and I mean this, he already has. He already has. You see, when you think of John's doubt, one thing we need to remember is his doubt is less an issue of faith and more one of perspective. It's a lack of perspective. John is living before the cross. So his issue is not so much doubt, it's his date of birth. That's not the issue for us. I mean, we worship God in a sanctuary with a cross in the background. We know what the cross means. We know the significance of the cross. John knows nothing of it. Completely oblivious to the cross. And we worship together, not only because Jesus died for sin, but because he conquered death by rising from the dead. We have the resurrection. John... Has no concept. He has no idea about this resurrection of the Messiah. That's in the future. We gather and sing about the Lord's second coming, where he's going to complete that which he began, and the fullness of the kingdom will be here on this earth. John knows nothing of the second coming. He doesn't know there's two parts to this. John doesn't know this stuff. We do. We have the New Testament, we have the scriptures. We have the cross. We have the empty tomb, the resurrection. We have the words of the apostles, the eyewitnesses. We have the rise of the church, the voice of the martyrs, the inner testimony of the spirit. We have more at our disposal when it comes to Jesus than John could have possibly imagined. And yet, we still struggle, don't we? Like doubt is still an issue. And if you're out there thinking, oh man, I'm the only person I know that's here this morning that ever wrestles with doubt. You're not. You're not at all. Doubt is a struggle for many folks. And, and the way I see it, there are many roads that can lead to doubt. But there are three main highways. So many roads, but three main highways. And, and the highways that lead to doubt, in my opinion, are one, uh, an intellectual challenge. Two, personal sin. Or three, suffering. So it's an intellectual challenge, typically. It's personal sin or it's suffering. And what's interesting is all three of those are connected to having false expectations about God or about the Christian life. A false expectation that because we're just awesome humanity and we sent a man to the moon... That we should know everything there is to know about God. The false expectation that, hey, when you become a believer, life gets easy. Like struggle just washes away. And I don't struggle with sin. I don't struggle with my kids. I don't struggle in marriage. I don't struggle with wanting to read the Bible. I mean, my Christian life is just up and to the right, nonstop. No way. Or the expectation that because God loves me and because I've come to faith in him, ergo, therefore, I will not suffer. These are false expectations. The Bible actually promises the opposite. Like it guarantees the exact opposite. The Bible says there's mystery and you'll never figure it out. God is beyond you. The scriptures say life is hard. And there's going to be some things that get better and there's going to be some things that grind you up. That you hang in there. And then the scriptures promise suffering. In this life, you will have troubles. It's not optional. So the scriptures actually promise all three. And to expect otherwise is to expect a canon in place of the canyon. There, there's, a great, there's a great verse that's found in the end of Deuteronomy 29. Moses is preaching to the Israelites. And he says these words. He says, The secret things belong to our God. But the revealed things belong to us. He says, the secret things belong to our God. But the revealed things, they belong to us. And then he says, and to our sons forever, that we might obey all the words of the law. Powerful. Because the bottom line is, we don't know all there is to know about God. And that is not an intellectual cop out. That is just the reality. It should not shock us. It's part of the deal when the creation is trying to understand the Creator. There is what we call a knowledge gap. Just like there's a knowledge gap between me and my one year old, he knows me sufficiently, but he does not know me exhaustively. We know God truly, but not completely. Mystery remains. And our job is not to figure out that which we cannot know. Our job is to walk in faith and to walk in obedience to that which he has revealed. Because in this life, we are called to live by faith. And it is not a blind faith, but it is faith. And where there is faith, there will always be the threat of what doubt there will always be the threat of doubt in a life where you live by faith and so we must learn to respond appropriately to our doubts we must learn to doubt our doubts and fix our eyes on jesus to what he has revealed and let the let the light that's shining from his cross help us with the darkness of the things that we don't understand it all comes back to fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because in him is blessing. And he tells us that in the next verse, when he closes up this first section in verse 23. He says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And the word offense is the Greek word "scandalizo," And it means to be entrapped, to fall into something. It's the word we get, scandal. And so Jesus is saying to John and beyond to us, look, when disappointment comes, when confusion sets in, when things are foggy all around you, don't get embarrassed by me. Hang with me. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. And we live in a world that's constantly changing and Christianity is obviously losing its place of preeminence in our culture. And we are being shamed by people, but we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. We can be ashamed of how certain Christians act, but we're not ashamed of our Christ. And we're not ashamed of the gospel. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Now, starting in verse 24, what he does is he pivots. He pivots from how John perceives him to how he perceives John. And that pivot happens in verse 24, and this is what it says When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. So those guys leave Jesus turns to the crowd and he just wants to make clear to them just because I just coached John up a little bit And just because John is struggling. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about him This guy is special This guy is the real deal He's John the baptist And you know, he's special you went out to see him You went out there And why did you go out there? Was it to go see a reed shaken by the wind? In other words, did you go see him because he, he was somebody with, without a backbone? He was wishy-washy, kind of a coward? No. Did you go out to see John because he was clothed in splendor? You know, was he in royal robes? Did you go out to see him because of his fancy clothing? No way. No way. If you want that, go to the palace, not John. No, you went out to see him because he's a prophet. And not just any prophet. He's my prophet. He's my guy. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. He's the real deal. And as a matter of fact, there's never been one greater than him. Wow. It's a pretty big statement. Moses? Nope. David? Nope. Abraham? Nope. Jesus, you can talk to Jesus about it. You can argue with him. Jesus says, John. John's the guy. Why? Why is he the greatest? Is it because of his morality and his passion, his intelligence? I don't think so. Even even though those were fantastic. Was it because of the size and the success of his ministry? No. No. He is the greatest born of woman because he is the forerunner to the Messiah who is the greatest there will ever be. It wasn't the power of his character that made him great. It was his proximity to the Savior. John was great. But it's not his personal greatness that makes him great or makes him the greatest. It's his proximity to the Savior that makes him unique as his forerunner. It reminds me of when I used to, uh, when I went to Texas A&M University. Hey, whoop. And when I was there, I worked at the rec center. Okay, I worked at the fitness facility. And we had a guy who would come work out pretty frequently because uh, he had a place there in town that he would visit. And his name was George H.W. Bush, our 40, 41st president. And we always knew when President Bush was coming in because the Secret Service was coming in first. Kid you not, I'm out at the front of the wreck. These black cars drive out, Secret Service is out. They're going through the wreck center. Clear, 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 clear. So we knew President Bush was coming. So I, part of my job at the wreck was I would go up there and then greet some of the dignitaries. And so that would come in. So I had numerous conversations with the president through the years. And President Bush would come in and he'd say, Michael. <laughs> say, how are you today? And I'd say, Mr. President, doing well. I mean, the former president knew my name. Now, some would say it was because I was wearing a name tag. But um, I think we all know that the connection was legit, all right? It's a real friendship. Anyways, after, after we would talk and he would, he would walk away, sometimes people would come up to me. Just with this, you know, shocked look on their face. They'd be like, Michael, you just talked to President Bush. Be like, yeah, I know, I know. They'd say, well, what'd he say? What's he like? Why does he always talk to you when he comes in? And I'd say, because it's my job. That's my role at the rec. I greet some of those folks when they come in. And so all of a sudden, I became, like, important But only because I knew somebody who was, or talked to somebody, who was actually important, who was truly important, like the former president. You see, John is the greatest there had ever been because John paved the way for the greatest there ever will be, our Lord Jesus. But let's be clear, John did not choose to be the forerunner in the first century any more than I chose to be born in Plano, Texas in the 20th century. That's all God. That's all God. That's God's design. I have a mentor who's told me, and and I think he's right. He says, there's no great people. There's only a great God who causes greatness to occur by his grace. There's There's no great people. There's a great God who causes greatness to occur always by his grace. And I'm kind of actually thankful for that because it removes some of the pressure, doesn't it? Our job is not to seek greatness by being something or someone we are not, like John the Baptist. Our job is to seek God, to seek the kingdom, to walk humbly, joyfully, and faithfully in the life that he has given to us. And to honor him with that. Because whatever temporal significance we experience here, it will pale in comparison to the eternal life we have with God in the resurrection. And this truth helps us understand what Jesus says next. Because he says, although John is the greatest there has ever been, he's the real deal. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, How is that possible? what's Jesus saying there? And to answer that question, I think we need to first understand what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God is a a big topic in scripture. And it's a big topic in the gospel of Luke that we're going to continue to unpack as we go along. So it's hard to distill it But in many ways, the kingdom of God is like any other kingdom, and that involves three things. It involves a king, it involves subjects of the king, and it involves a kingdom, a sphere of rule, a sphere of reign. And so we know that Jesus is our king, amen? And we know that the subjects of God are the people of God, those who have been called to him, those who have turned to Christ Jesus, turned to God in faith for the forgiveness of their sin. So we got those things mapped out. But what what, what about sphere? What's the sphere of this kingdom? And this is where the kingdom of God can get a little bit tricky. Because in some sense, you could say, well, isn't everything part of God's kingdom? I mean, he created everything. It's all for him, by him, to him. I mean, so isn't everything part of his kingdom? Well, sure, you could say that. That everything is part of his eternal kingdom. And then in another sense, you could say, well, his kingdom, he's reigning in my heart. Right? So those who have turned to Jesus in faith and who are saved, that are in Christ. He is our King, and He is reigning spiritually in our life. And that is true as well. But the kingdom that Jesus refers to, both before, before His death and resurrection here, and even after in places like Acts chapter 1, is the same kingdom predicted in the Old Testament. It's the same kingdom that the New Testament keeps looking forward to all the way through the end of Revelation chapter 20 that talks about this thousand years reign. So that's why this kingdom is often called the millennial kingdom. Or you may hear it referred to as the mediatorial kingdom because it is through a mediator named Jesus Christ. Okay? And so this is a kingdom where it is on this earth where Christ rules as the Davidic king and all the promises from the book of Genesis on come to their final and full fruition and so that is yet future that is yet future now to be to be fair and i say this because i just want to be i want to be clear and honest there are solid god-fearing bible-loving people who see the kingdom a little bit differently okay So some see the kingdom as having come in a major way already. I do not hold that view. And I think all you have to do is open up the newspaper. Some say, well, the kingdom has begun. It's an already not yet thing. It's begun in Christ's first coming, but it's not yet. It won't be fully here until his second coming. And then others say, no, there's no kingdom until the king is here. And so the kingdom is completely future. And so wherever one lands on this, what all say together in one accord is the body of Christ is that the fullness of the kingdom will not come until the king of kings comes into our presence. So the fullness of the kingdom will not be here until the king of kings is here in our presence. And until that day, what you and I are to do is to live as kingdom citizens as to live as strangers in a strange land who have given our allegiance to the true king, the one true king, our Lord Jesus, and who earnestly desire and await his return where he will set up the kingdom that will have no end. Does that make sense? That's what we are to do. And knowing this about the kingdom, it makes more sense now to why Jesus can say, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Not because John's not in the kingdom. But because John only anticipated it in his life, he did not experience it. He anticipated the kingdom. He did not have the fulfillment of the kingdom in his life. His life was great, as great as it gets. But life in the kingdom will be so experientially and qualitatively better and greater than the life that John experienced on this earth. And so that's why Jesus can say these words. As I thought about how to illustrate this, I kind of actually reflected back to the Super Bowl. It always comes back to football, right? And I don't know how many of you watched the underdog Philadelphia Eagles defeat the dynasty, the, the unbeatable New England Patriots in this great upset. But Tom Brady is the quarterback of the Patriots, and he's widely considered, he's probably the greatest quarterback there's ever been. He's just amazing. And in, and in the loss a couple weeks ago, he threw for 505 yards a Super Bowl record, breaking the record that he already held. He's the greatest of all time. And on the other hand, the quarterback for the Eagles was an old Texas boy (laughs) named Nick Foles, the best thing to come out of Austin, Texas, since Roger. (laughs) But Foles was a guy whose career had taken a much different trajectory than Brady's. Okay, Foles had been cut. Foles was washed up. He was a draft bust. So much so that I read an article last week in Sports Illustrated that he had retired. He told everybody he was done. He went on a fishing trip for four days, no cell phone service. He comes back and he has a message from Andy Reid, one of his old coaches that says, why don't you give it one more shot? Foles is in seminary. He wants to be a pastor but he put off the pulpit for a little bit because he said, I'm going to do this thing one more time. He ends up on the Eagles. The starting quarterback gets hurt. He ends up as the quarterback and he ends up leading the Eagles to the greatest victory in the history of the franchise and their first Super Bowl championship. And when it was all said and done and the confetti fell from the sky, I guarantee you that Tom Brady would have traded all those things He would have traded the yards, the touchdowns, the accolades, the season MVP. He would have traded all that if he could have been in the winning locker room with his teammates. Celebrating the Super Bowl championship. And on that day, being the backup journeyman quarterback for the champions was better than being the greatest of all time on the team that lost. And when you think of the kingdom of God, The greatness of the kingdom, being a role player in the eternal kingdom of God, far surpasses being significant right now. Being significant on this earth. Because in the kingdom of God, there's the fullness of joy, there's the fullness of hope, there's the fullness of love, there's the life that we have always longed to live. So the question then becomes well, how do I get an entrance into this kingdom? Like, what's the requirement? to be a kingdom citizen. And Jesus tells us next in verses 29 through 30. He says, When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So what what Jesus does is he sets up a contrast of two groups. He says, "On, On the left, in this group, you have people who... Believed in John's baptism, who recognized their sin and their need for repentance, and who were baptized. And in this corner, you have those who did not. You have those who said, No thanks, John. No thanks, God. No need for repentance. Thank you, but I'm doing just fine. And so Jesus closes this passage with a rebuke of those people. And this is what he says in verses 31 through 35. To what shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. So Jesus rebukes these guys. He compares them to a bunch of spoiled brats. A bunch of kids who just whine and criticize when they don't get their way. They just throw a temper tantrum when somebody doesn't play by their rules. I mean, he says, look, John the Baptist came. I mean, this guy's preaching a hard message of repentance. He doesn't eat, drink, smoke, swear, or like those who do. And you say, he's got demons. He's crazy. I don't want to repent. I don't want to change the way I live. Then you have me, the son of man. And I come bringing this message of grace and life. And how do you respond to me? You say, he's a libertine. He's a drunkard. He hangs out with the sinners. He's, he's, he's terrible. One is too intense because he calls for repentance. And one is too liberal because he offers grace. And they say, we want neither. Because we want what we want, when we want, how we want it, period. End of discussion. And Jesus says, wisdom is vindicated. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. He's saying, in the end, time is going to tell who was right. And it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well. And I, uh, I was reminded of this. I closed with a story. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Houston for seminary. I, I, gra- I graduated seminary in 2016. But I decided, hey, I'm going to go back. So, I started last year and I went back because I wanted more training. I really enjoy it. And because I wanted to sit under certain guys that I hadn't had a chance to sit under during the first degree. And one of those guys, without question, was a prof by the name of Dr. John Hanna. And Dr. Hanna has taught at DTS for 46 years so we were in a, a church history class a few weeks ago, and Dr. Hannah always has these anecdotes and these stories that he puts in. So he stopped, and he told us a story about one of his doctoral fathers. So Dr. Hannah has three doctorates and two masters. So each time you get a doctorate, you have a doctoral father or an advisor. And so he's talking about this guy that he had during one of his doctorates. And this advisor knew the gospel intellectually. I mean, he knew it. He was fully aware of it. He understood it so well that Dr. Hannah says there were times that he would write something and this guy would get back to him and say, No, John, you actually need to write it like this. This says it better. So he would correct Dr. Hannah. And yet this man had not embraced Jesus as Lord. Like many in academia, in the religious department, religion departments, he knew the gospel intellectually, but he did not know Jesus as Lord. And he was dying, he had a terminal illness. So he and Dr. Hannah would sit and chat about his dissertation and things like that, and and they became friends, and Dr. Hannah would say, Why don't you just turn to Jesus? Like you know this. Why won't you come to him? And finally the professor answered him. He said, Two reasons, John. Two reasons. Number one, I will lose all credibility with my peers. He's embarrassed, flat-out embarrassed of the gospel. And then number two, he says, If I received him as my Lord, I know I would also have to receive him as the authority in my life. And I don't want to do that. He's right. He would need to accept him as the authority in his life. But he said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to play by his rules. And not long after that, the man died. Embarrassed of the Savior. Unwilling to turn to him as Lord. And may that not be said of us. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. I am not a scandal to be avoided I am the Lord. Do not be embarrassed. There will be things we do not understand in this life. Many of you are walking through them right now. I do not doubt that. There's heartache that is unexplainable. And it can cause us to lose hope, to lose joy, and to doubt. But it's in those moments we are to look to the cross Where through what God has revealed, we can faithfully walk in that which we do not understand. So we must learn to doubt our doubts. Walk by faith. Acknowledge the righteousness of God and acknowledge Him as Lord. And when the hard things come, which they will, we look back to the cross where the Savior bled for me. And we look forward to the King of Kings who's coming again where he will establish a kingdom that will not end. And when thy kingdom will come and thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious, you are good, you are true, you are faithful. You have given us everything we need. God, even as I just stand up here and I just, just even as I'm preaching, I'm just thinking about the fact that we're reading the words of God. Like you have given us so much to know you. And so we praise you. And God, the greatest picture that we may know you, the greatest way which we may know you goes right through the cross of Calvary. It's redemption. It's when the Father sent the Son Our Lord Jesus to be the Savior of the world. So we praise you, Father, for sending the Son, and we praise you, our Lord Jesus, born in a manger, who lived a perfect life, never sinning, before willingly going to the cross where He died for our sin. For because the wages of our sin is death, we earn separation from you. But you are a missionary God, not on my watch, and you took on flesh. As one of us, lived the perfect life we could not live, dying the death that we deserved. But you did not stay dead. You were not a good teacher. You were not a good person. You're not just a moralist. You were the God-man. And you rose from the dead on that third day, conquering death and sin. And inviting all who will place their faith in you, new life in you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone this morning that's actually not battling doubt, they are battling disbelief. They don't even, they've never come to you as Lord. They've never taken that step of faith. God, I pray that by your spirit, by your hand, by your power, you would reveal yourself to them. You would stir in their hearts to where they could not deny the truth that is you are their Lord and Savior. And they don't understand all the things that are in this book, but they know they're a sinner. They know they need forgiveness. They know you are not like anyone else. You are our Lord. God, stir in their hearts. And for those of us who do know you, God, would you help us? Would you help our unbelief? Would you help our doubt? Would you set our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith? And when the darkness and the fog comes, may we see the bright shining light of the cross reminding us of the great love you have for us and that you are faithful. So Lord, I thank you for this morning. We commit it to you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.